Mark chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 21. And as you'll see, just what Leslie had to share um, in the worship time just resonates very profoundly, actually, with what I'm going to be speaking on today. And um, I trust, you know, when that happens, I just think, well, God wants to speak to at least one or two of you here. So um, let's read the passage. Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was, he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. But she said, If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. I love that little note at the end where it says, she began walking, for she, she was 12 years of age. She's just clarifying in case you think this is a double miracle. So not only has he healed this girl, but she's only three months and she's already walking. But uh, it's just one of those notes of realism that comes across in the Gospels. Um, okay, so we begin in, in quite a dark place in this story, in a place of um, real hopelessness. And I want to speak to you guys, if that's somewhere that you have found yourself for whatever reason. The, the two stories that are happening here are moments, on the one hand, of acute Acute, desperate hopelessness on the part of Jairus, this ruler, who not only has a daughter who's sick on the point of death, but then she actually dies, and the friends say, oh, you know, don't bother the teacher anymore, she's dead. Twelve years of joy in having his precious child taken from him in an instant. There's nothing more crushing 
Nothing more depressing, nothing that can rob you of your peace more than that. There's nothing that should... That's one of the things that a parent should never experience is the death of their own child. A very acute situation. The other is a chronic situation, chronic hopelessness, because this woman, for the same amount of time, it seems, for 12 years, has, um, has her suffering lasted while Jairus' joy has lasted that time. And she has been, it says here... Um, so that she suffered under many physicians. Um, nothing seemed to help her. And so I want to speak to you, friends, if you find yourself in a situation where, let's say that you have a sickness that's troubled you for a long time and robbed you of hope and joy and affected your well-being, or, or perhaps you, have, you find yourself in a state of mind often which um, affects you and makes you feel that things will never change for me, whether it's depression or anxiety, fears that dog you and frustrate you, whether it's a particular sin that you've wrestled with over years. And you know, the Bible talks about besetting sins. It talks about um, being ca- caught in a sin. I think that even Christians can find themselves uh, wrestling with the same thing again and again, and frustrated, depressed, annoyed, angry, hopeless, and on account of the feeling that they are unable to change. Or maybe it's just your pain for somebody else. Like Jairus, whose heart was aching for his daughter. You maybe have friends or family members who are suffering, and you feel a hopelessness on their part. And maybe, like the woman in the story, you feel you've tried everything. It says, doesn't it, that she'd spent all she had and was no better but had grown worse. She'd seen all these doctors and they'd all taken her money and offered her no lasting solution. You know, we obviously were in Africa last week. In Africa, you know, there are parts of Africa where there are many um, quack remedies and quack doctors who will offer you um, things that just don't help, for, like, whether it's HIV or whatever. But that's not an African problem. That's just a human problem that we grasp at anything that will offer us hope and so often find that they don't last. You know, when I walk through town and in London you see the crowds and as, you know, to echo what the passage Jeremy preached on a few weeks ago, you see them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And people, you know, something like a third of London has experienced depression and people are grasping at whatever they can to find wholeness, to find peace, to find help in their quiet desperation. And they turn to, whether it's new spiritualities, things like uh, the mindfulness technique that's come out of Buddhism, and they turn to technology, and they turn to politics, and, and, and say it's all about the system, the system's broken. They turn to all kinds of things to find hope and help and healing. And even if these things work momentarily, the truth is they never work in a lasting way to address the deeper issue of your heart, what's broken inside. And if that's something that you resonate with, maybe it's the very reason that you're here today, that you feel you've tried many things and they've, you've grown worse and it doesn't feel like your, your issues are solved. I want to speak to you about the hope that this story gives. And I want to show you three reasons why I think that we can take such profound hope from this amazing account in Mark 5. The first is that you can have hope because it's all true. Now, this may sound like a cold and intellectual place to begin when we're talking about matters of the heart. But I want to speak to you if you maybe find yourself as a skeptic or a seeker, someone who's wrestled with the, the, the Christianity and whether it's true or not. 
I want to urge you to, to hear what I have to say, or if you're a Christian here, then listen up, because this is stuff you can help others to understand and to see. The issue that I want you to understand is that the heart of hopelessness is always doubt. It's always doubt that there's, there's ever going to be some kind of help, a lasting solution. And if you are a skeptic, Please don't think that you can just have some kind of experience that's going to change your life. I'm not saying experiences aren't important. The most important thing is that you have a persuasion that the things we're talking about are actually true. On Sunday night, actually, a guy came up to me very emotional um, at, this, at this, the large church we were at. And he said... Uh, my girlfriend was too scared to stand up earlier, but she wants to give her life to Jesus tonight. And uh, she wasn't a Christian. He wasn't actually part of that church, but he was a Christian, and he brought her along. And uh, so I went to, I said, can I ask her a few questions? And he said, fine. And so I went over, and I started asking her questions, and he was trying to urge me to pray for her as quickly as possible, I think, to seal the deal, to turn her into a Christian if I could do that, as though I have that kind of power. And then, uh, and so I, I said to her, just let me ask you some more. And I said to her, so you want to become a Christian, is that right? She said, yes. And I said, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? She said, no. I thought to myself, there's some work to be done here. And... Um, and I just encouraged her, you know, you've got, to, you've got to wrestle with the truthfulness of this before you can experience the power of it. I think she'd been swept up by the emotion in the singing, um, by some, some of the passion in what I'd been sharing, and it, it made her feel kind of, you know, that, that heartwarming sense that you sometimes get at church, uh, where you feel, wow, something's going on here, and I don't know what, and I want to be a Christian, but she had no idea what it meant. So I, I just, we, we, we sort of wanted her to, to continue on her search the issue for her is that you can't just encounter Christ outside of the truth. You have to be persuaded these things are true. In fact, I'll go further and say that's one of the very unique, most unique things about Christianity. Other faiths might offer you mystical experiences, encounters, spiritualities that make you go, ooh. And I'm not saying that stuff isn't, there isn't something real going on there, but I'm not saying it's good enough. I'm saying it's not good enough. Other faiths offer you, and this is typical, they offer you a teaching, a path to walk on. Do this, do that, do the other. Christianity at its heart does neither of those things. They're they're wrapped up in the bigger picture, but the heart of Christianity is that it tells you that there's a story that happened in world history, and it's true, and whether you accept it to be true or not changes absolutely everything. If it's not true, you can dismiss the whole thing. If it is true then everything about your life should look different in the light of these truths. You can't ignore them. And so when we come to a story like this, I want to urge you to understand that in a world where we get many, many false hopes, false promises, and I'm just thinking about all the advertisements that we're bombarded with that tell you your life's going to be better and you can have a more full, more whole life, if you just buy this, or you just buy into that, or you just practice this, we've grown increasingly cynical, haven't we? Because our hearts rightly begin to question if any of this stuff really lives up to the promises. In a world where that is the case, I want to urge you to realize that coming in your mind to a point of total conviction about the truthfulness of Christianity is where hope begins. So that's why I think we need to just start here. 
Why do I think this story is true? Let me give you a few reasons. One of the reasons is because when you read the Gospels, you may have been told that this stuff is just a bunch of, you know, made-up baloney, that it was just oral testimonies that, that kind of grew bigger in the telling from passing it from one person to another until someone had the idea to write them all down and then add a little bit of their own. And finally, we end up with the myth surrounding Jesus. A lot of people are bought into that idea. It's one of the reasons so many people reject Jesus is because they think, oh, we don't actually know anything about him. Nothing, my friends, could be further from the truth. There was a man called um, C.S. Lewis who grew up in Northern Ireland and uh, he, he grew up reading fiction literature. And not just fiction literature like Victorian novels or whatever were available to him at the time. I'm talking fiction literature from the ancient annals of history. We're talking Homer and, and all the Greek guys and Nordic literature. And he often read, the, especially the Greek stuff, in its original languages. And it became his field of expertise so that when he became a teacher at Oxford, he was a teacher of, of um, well, particularly medieval literature in England. And, and he understood myths and, and all these kinds of things better than most because he'd read so many of them. And when he went from a conversion from atheism to Christianity, one of the things that, that did it for him was that when he encountered Christ in the Gospels, he realized that what he was reading here is nothing like the stories that he'd, been, he'd grown up reading. And then he got frustrated with all the scholars who like to say that they're experts in this book, but at the same time want to cast doubt on its truthfulness. And he wrote this. He says, I distrust them as critics. If he tells me that something in a gospel is a legend or a romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he's read. How well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor. Not how many years he spent on that gospel. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths my, all of my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this. He says, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Friends, when you read the Gospels, how do you hear them? Do you hear them as sort of like mythical stories or do you read them as like, this is facts, this actually really happened? When you read through this particular story, some of the things that should hit you, uh, which don't immediately, but on closer inspection you'll see are there, are, are just little facts like this. Did you notice how... Um, how Mark takes the time to name Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, but he doesn't give us the name of the woman who's healed. Now, a lot of people would say, have wrestled with the question of why Mark names certain people in the Gospels. Like, for example, when Jesus is going to, to, to taking it, carrying the cross up to Golgotha, it says that a man called Simon was pulled out from the crowd and commanded to help him. And it says Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus little random detail just thrown in there. A lot of people wonder, why on earth are these little details there? And the only credible answer that scholars come up with, and particularly Michael Richard Borkham, who's a theologian in Scotland, he said, the only reason that we can really account for this is that some of these guys who are named in the Gospels were still alive, or people who knew them were alive and in the Christian community. So you could go to any of these people and say, hey, I understand you knew Jairus. Tell me about that story. How did he tell it? And you can go and check all this stuff out for yourself. So interesting, isn't it? We also have little details like how the disciples always come up, ending off, end up coming, coming off like 
It is in these stories. It says in verse 31 how they, they say to Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Here they are questioning Jesus. Now, think about this. If you're a disciple and it's your job to tell people the truth about Jesus now that he's ascended to heaven and uh, you need to, you need to buy, get people to buy into your credibility as a, as a storyteller, don't you? To actually believe that you're telling them the truth. And, uh, you know, if you were to stand up in a court of law and sound like you were not credible as a witness, no one's going to give your, your testimony any credence, are they? But for these, these disciples, you know, if they want to win people over, to make them, you'd think they'd try and make themselves sound fantastic in every story in which they feature, right? And yet when you read the Gospels consistently from beginning to end, they always sound like wallies. Jesus always sounds like the hero, and the only reason you can account for that again is that these stories happened the way they told them. And they weren't trying to impress people by how clever they were. They were trying to just tell people the, the truth as it happened. Just one little other thing that goes on in here. Did you notice how Jesus said these Aramaic words, Talitha kumi, and for some reason Mark decides to write it here in Aramaic and then give us a translation. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Mark learned most of these stories sitting at the feet of Peter, Jesus' apostle. And when Peter told this story to Mark, his eyes must have welled up as he remembered the precise moment. There's only him and two other men with them in the house when Jesus took this girl's hand and said in Aramaic these two words, Talitha kumi. And it was emblazoned in his memory. So when he relayed the story to Mark, who wrote it down, he said it as it was. Friends, the reason why I want you to realize that, that this is so vitally important to, to accept the truthfulness of it is that because we can only have hope when we recognize that this stuff is all true. And you might say, well, what, how does that help me? Because if Jesus was around right now, I'd go and find him and I'd go and touch him and I'd be helped and healed. But he's not around so even if it is true, it's fine for them 2,000 years ago, but it's hardly going to help me now in a theater in the middle of London in 2016. I would want you to reconsider that, because what does Jesus say here? He doesn't say it's the touching him that's important. He says it's the faith that matters. And the same faith that was working both in Jairus and in the woman can work in your life to bring you help and healing from Christ. In fact, Jesus makes it really plain that it's far better that he's not with us now because he would send his Holy Spirit to us who is available to everyone everywhere. Whereas if he were here in the flesh, you'd have as much chance of getting near him as you have getting near to the Pope in his Pope-mobile with his bulletproof glass. You don't get to touch the Pope. You wouldn't get anywhere near Christ. Friends, the first reason I want you to urge you to, to have hope again if you're feeling hopeless in your situation is that it is all true. Let me move on and tell you a second reason. You can have hope, my friends, because of what this story shows you that Jesus can do for you. Think for a moment about what it is that you're feeling you need Christ for right now. And I'm sure there are as many needs as there are people in this room, if not more. On the surface of things, these stories tell us that Jesus can bring you healing. And I believe it, and I'd love to pray for you if you're unwell. 
My dad is here. He's prayed for many, many people over the years and seen them healed of all kinds of things, sometimes remarkably so. If you want someone to pray for you, we'll gladly do it. Just come and grab us. I'll be at the front at the end. I also want you to understand, however, that when we read these stories, so often the, 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 the gospel healing accounts and miracles are actually, they're called signs. Because whilst the, the miracle ha- takes place at the kind of the obvious level, Jesus did those specific miracles because of what they indicated, because of the deeper significance of what was taking place. And I want to show you how that's true in these, these accounts and, and how that can help you in your situation. One of the things that Jesus can offer you is that he can take away your fears. If you're a fearful person and also a Christian, I, I, you know, I want to say this as gently as possible. There's something wrong in that. I'm not saying that any of us are free of fear. We all wrestle with fears. But I want you to understand that in many ways, the things that we are afraid of become a kind of a denial of, of our faith in Jesus, don't they? Because they, they, they say that we don't trust you, Lord. And Jesus sets these two things, faith and fear, off against each other. When he says to Jairus, he says, do not fear, only believe. I believe in some ways that the story of the healing of his daughter was, is there to show us that Jesus wants to deal with even our deepest, darkest fears. What are you afraid of? Christians should be people who are solidly joyful, hopeful, and confident in life. Because we know that nothing happens outside of God's control, and the worst things that happen are not the worst things that can happen. That's one of the reasons this story happens. The miracle is there to show us that when Jesus is in the room, as it were, everything should look different for you. That's why he says to all these wailing people, he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. He's saying there's all this fretful emotion going on, but the reality of the situation is that I'm in control. And he says the exact same thing to you. Your emotions are denying the fact that he's in control. And when he is in the room, if I can speak metaphorically... In fact, literally, because he is, right? When he's in the room, everything should look different for you. And here he deals with our deepest, darkest fear, the fear of death. He shows that he's Lord over death. And if he's Lord over death, he says elsewhere in another gospel, I'm the resurrection and the life. If he's Lord over death, then he's Lord over everything else, which is always just that little bit less scary than death. So whatever your fear is, it can't be as big as this. And if he's dealt with this, He can deal with your situation. He wants to deal with your fears. But here's where I think the the main heart of these stories is and where it relates so well to to what Leslie was sharing with us in the worship. It's this. Jesus wants to show you that he can undefile you. These Old Testament, sorry, these two stories, if you know your Old Testament and the background, you'd understand that both of these situations are situations of what, under the Old Testament law, were ceremonially unclean, defiled situations. What do I mean? Well, if you turn back, I'm not going to do it now, but if you turn back into Leviticus 15, this is the law Jesus lived and and breathed. 
then there you'll find that there are various situations in which men and women were unclean for a specific amount of time and they couldn't enter into temple worship. One of them was when a woman was going through her menstrual cycle. And uh, it talks about how she becomes ceremonially unclean for that time period and the things that she touches also become unclean. This woman had been bleeding that way for 12 years. Also, in Numbers 19, it tells us when somebody dies, a dead, pod, a dead body becomes ceremonially unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean, and anyone who goes into a building with it becomes unclean for a certain amount of time. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I want you to understand that in both of these situations, Jesus was confronted with ceremonial, ritual uncleanness. And particularly for the woman, this woman would have felt like a total reject, a total outcast, totally full of shame on account of her situation. It's exactly what Leslie was talking into earlier, isn't it? Do you feel shame because of the things you're hiding? When you are honest about your heart, is there stuff inside which you feel just that you can never accept it on account of? Back in the 1980s, when, um, when the HIV epidemic came into the public's awareness, it was not uncommon for people to experience total exclusion if they had HIV. Because people were so afraid of it. They didn't want to be in the same room. They didn't want to sit on the same toilet. They didn't want to um, come into contact with anyone with this disease. Because people just didn't understand it and they felt afraid of it. And friends, however that made people feel who had HIV then, that's exactly how this woman must have felt. 12 years. It's quite likely she hadn't touched another person for 12 years. She couldn't sit on a chair without having to warn other people, don't sit on that chair. Can you imagine anything more lonely and isolating than what she must have gone through? And the longer that I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor now almost nine years, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I realize that ordinary Christians, not to mention people who who are not Christian, ordinary people are wrestling with all kinds of things that they keep in the dark whether it's secret sins, whether it's depression that you're too ashamed to talk about, anxieties that dominate your mind and your heart and paralyze you, whether it's a sense of defilement, dirtiness, because of things you've done, but also because of things done to you that perhaps were never your fault, and fears which dominate the mind. So many people are full of this sense of being unclean, And the more that we hide away in our uncleanness, the lonelier that we get. And the best that it seems to me that the world offers us is some kind of therapy, which says to maybe accept yourself as you are. It's pretty much the heart of all healing messages that you get um, from therapies these days. And I say, it's just not good enough. When you know that you're objectively guilty and that there's something wrong with you or something tainted in you, it's not enough, is it, just to say, I accept myself and then proudly flaunt yourself. No, you want, you want something that fixes you. You want something to actually heal you, something to actually solve the brokenness inside. 
Now, here's what I want you to understand. In Mark 5, when Jesus comes into these two situations, in both of them, by the Old Testament law, he should have become defiled himself. The woman actually touched his garment. The reason why she's so afraid when he says, it looks around and he asks who's done it, it says the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down, she's shaking. The reason why she's so afraid is because she knows that she's done something very wrong. She should never have touched him because it made him unclean and he's the righteous teacher. How can she do that to him? When he walked into the room with a dead body, he became unclean. When he touched the hand, he became unclean, it seems. And yet he didn't. Because instead, the great power of Christ overcame both of these situations. And friends, for me, when I read these stories, this is a wonderful and perfect picture of what it is that Christians believe. We are those who are tainted. If any of you don't think that there's a blackness in your heart, then I feel that you're probably lying to yourself and not just to me. We are those who are defiled. How does Jesus help us? The New Testament puts it like this. It says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. He was a sinless one, and God said, I'm going to make you sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It talks about this profound transfer, the dirtiness you feel on account of the things that you have kept hidden are given to Jesus and he carries them on the cross. And in place, he gives you his cleanness, his righteousness, his perfect record. And it's not your record, and no, you don't deserve it, but he gives it to you anyway. That's why a little bit later in the New Testament, we have this amazing verse where it says, if we walk in the light. That's what the woman was doing when she went to touch Jesus. She's beginning to come into the light. So what happened when the girl was taken by the hand and stood up. She came into the light of Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. My friend, Jesus can totally, completely, and irreversibly undefile you. If you are someone for whom this is resonating even a bit, I would love to pray with you. I would love even just to talk with you. When we close at the very end, as I said, I'll be here at the front. The guys who are part of the leadership team will be here as well. If any of you want to be brave and find your way down here and come and talk to us, then please do, and we'd love to pray with you. The power of Christ, as so many of us in this room have experienced, does this, it cleans us, it makes us feel unashamed and, and guiltless again. Not because our past is taken away in, in the sense that we haven't done those things, but in the sense that God chooses to forget them. It's what we sang, as far as the east is from the west, he's taken our transgressions from us. I don't care what your shame is, if you bring it to Christ, he wants to deal with it. Here's my last reason why you can have hope. You can have hope Because all of this, what I've been speaking to you and offering to you through Jesus, is available to you right now. 
I know that for many of us, we would hesitate to respond to Christ. Maybe because you feel just too unworthy, like the woman. Or maybe because you think it's too late, like the friends of Jairus, who say, why trouble the teacher anymore? You think my situation is beyond remedy. I only want to encourage you as I close, that when you look at Jesus, don't you find that he is full of grace and kindness towards you? Look at how he dealt with this woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He didn't want to find her in the crowd to tell her off. He wanted to find her to reassure her. Your faith has made you well, he says. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You can leave this place in total peace. And all the wrestling and the agony that's going on in your heart right now can be taken away forever. Why would you not? The only thing that Christ lays out as a condition for us is our faith. He says it twice. He says it once to the woman. Your faith has made you well. And he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, have faith. That's the only thing that you need. And you may be feeling, ah, I'm not sure that I even have the faith. In some ways, faith is a bit of a choice, you know. I know it can look like a feeling sometimes. Certainly that's the way many people want to portray it. It's just a feeling of believing something which you know isn't true. It's not that. But sometimes it's just putting your hand out and grasping and just saying, okay, I I want to actually take this because it sounds right and it sounds full of hope for me. You can make a choice when you reach out and, and, and pray to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to help me in my situation. And I'd urge you to understand that now is always the best time to respond. So just as Jairus earnestly sought Christ and, and said to him, my little daughter's unwell, come and help her. And just as the woman said to herself, if I touch even the edge of his garment, in both of them, there's this urgency. I have a window of opportunity. And I would encourage you, the fact that you're here today, the fact that you are listening to me, the fact that this message has resonated with some of you, is it should be enough in itself that you say, God is speaking to me, I need to do something about this right now. And if you wait and leave it, you don't know. The Bible says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's a choice you make that you can say, I'm hearing God, but I want to I wanna resist it. I'm going to hide. I'm going to walk away. It says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I would encourage you, my friends, if God is speaking to you, have dealings with him today. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. One of them is through just our taking communion. If you're a Christian, this is for you. We have the bread, we drink the wine. It's a chance to come to him and re-preach and experience the gospel for ourselves, that he took all of our sin on his flesh and his body on the cross so that we can have all of his righteousness. And as we take the bread and drink the wine, there is a chance for you If you just want to approach Christ again and talk to him and tell him, Lord Jesus, I want to cast this thing upon you and I want to ask you for your help, then do it in the communion time. But if you feel that it would be helpful for you to come and speak with us or just to have us pray for you, then I would urge you as we close the meeting to be brave and to come to the front and talk to us. It doesn't really matter who sees you because it only matters what you're doing before Christ, doesn't it?
Let me pray. Then I'm going to hand the bread out as the guys come up to lead us in a, in a song as we, for us to, uh, to take communion on. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that in you, I know I have found a friend who is closer than a brother, a savior who is matchless in power, and one who wants to heal us. And Lord, I thank you that so many of us in this room can tell stories of the ways that you have forgiven and cleansed and transformed us. And Lord, we will always be in awe of the grace of God. That you don't say, do this, do that, and do the other until you're good enough to become my children. But you say, I want to make you my children, and then I'm going to change you and heal you and transform you. I thank you that, Lord, that is so unique and so precious to us. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on these truths, and as we sing, and as we pass around the bread and the wine, I ask, Lord, that you will be doing a healing work in hearts today to bring transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.